All right. Ready to go? Ready. Okay. In many ways, the natural world is at a tipping point. We grow and manufacture crops at a massive scale. But at what cost? Farmers across the country apply pesticides at an alarming rate, attempting to maximize yields while minimizing the damage caused by pests and weeds. The issue is complex and widespread. And that is why, on this episode of Stories from the Floodplain, we talk with Nathan Donley, a senior scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity. I'll let Robert take it from here. This is Robert Hirschfeld with Prairie Rivers Network, and you are listening to Stories from the Floodplain, our ongoing conversation with environmental leaders and thinkers. I'm also joined today by my colleague, Kim Ernt Pitcher, Habitat and Agriculture Program Specialist at Prairie Rivers Network. Hi, Kim. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Glad to be here. And our guest today is Nathan Donley, Senior Scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity. Nathan, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the focus of our conversation today will be about the ongoing pesticide crisis that has enveloped much of the American landscape in recent years. Uh, But first, I wanted to start with your background a little bit. Um, What is the Center for Biological Diversity? What is your role there as scientist? And how did you come to that role? Uh, Good question. So uh, the Center for Biological Diversity is a national environmental nonprofit. Um, We work to uh, maintain and uh, keep the the biological diversity on the planet and ensure that we pass a world on uh, to the next generation that was at least as good or hopefully better than the ones we inherited. Um, And we do that through a number of ways. science, advocacy, um, education, outreach, uh, as well as the law. So we try to attack this uh, in a multi-pronged manner uh, to try and make sure that um, we are doing things as a species in the most sustainable way possible. And I am a scientist here and uh, I focus mostly on uh, pesticide use and regulation in this country. So uh, my expertise is really on pesticide policy and regulation and how that works in the US and more importantly, how it doesn't work. I'm sure many people have a kind of general understanding of what a pesticide or an herbicide is, but let's ask you the expert, what are pesticides? How do they work? Well, pesticides are poisons. Uh, They are designed to kill uh, certain types of life. Pesticides is a a large umbrella term that incorporates all sorts of chemical poisons. Um, uh, Most people are familiar with insecticides. So these are pesticides that target uh, insects or arthropods specifically. Uh, There's also uh, pesticides that target fungi, bacteria, uh, nematodes, you name it. Pesticides that target weeds are also called herbicides. Uh, Weeds are considered plant pests, so they are under the pesticide umbrella term. So it really uh, encompasses everything that is designed to kill something that you want to target. What is the application process? Someone who wants to make use of a pesticide, how do they apply that? If you can think of it, 
it's being done right now. Uh, that it's sort of everything under the sun. You can dump a pesticide out of the bottom of a helicopter uh, or an airplane, an aerial spraying. You can spray it uh, towing a, a ground boom from the back of a tractor. Um, you can do what's called air blast, which is uh, spray it in front of huge industrial fans that then blow into trees. Uh, you can apply it directly to the soil. This is very common. Uh, it's done with, you can either um, uh, sort of scatter granules on the ground. Uh, you can even put it in your irrigation water uh, in a process called chemigation. Uh, you can treat the seeds that you sow with the pesticide such that the plant that grows from that seed will contain pesticide residues that can ward off different insects and such. And I'm sure there are many more, <laughs> but you can you can spray it, you can scatter it, so it, it it makes it such that there's a lot of a lot of options people have available to them uh, if they want to use chemical poisons to target something. So big picture, what are the concerns with applying the amount of poison that we are? What are the non-target concerns. Obviously the pest is killed, but what are the other big picture concerns with applying that amount of poison to the landscape? Yeah, so most pesticides are small molecules. Um, they uh, typically are known to target a pathway to kill a pest, like an insect that you wanna kill. Um, but those same pathways exist in other insects, beneficial insects, uh, ones that you aren't necessarily wanting to kill. Um, and because you know we all sort of came from one another uh, through the process of evolution, a lot of these pathways are conserved in different taxa. So pathways that are targeted in insects, uh, you know, humans contain still some of those same pathways. Um, and so pesticides are notoriously um, uh, not very targeted. Uh, they generally. Uh, uh, target pathways that uh, exist in many different types of animals. And so the goal typically has been to increase uh, the targeting of your pesticides such that it's getting to the thing you want to kill and trying to minimize the effects as much as possible to non-target uh, animals or plants. And that, you know, has had some success uh, in the past, but, you know, you can only have so much success with that when you're using uh, things on this level, you know, in agriculture right now, we use 1.2 billion pounds of pesticides just in agriculture. That doesn't account for government use and, and use people use residentially. So when you're applying things at that level, at that scale, that are known to cause harm to life, uh, the off-target effects can be widespread and severe despite your best efforts to keep that at bay. And can you describe some examples of effects, whether that's effects on human health or the, the larger environment? Sure. I mean, you know, we saw it uh, in these last three or four years with um, a pesticide called dicamba, which is a weed killer, uh, being sprayed on uh, genetically engineered uh, soy and cotton throughout much of the Midwest and South. Um, this was, you know, obviously supposed to target weeds in those fields so that the crop could grow without um, competitiveness from those weeds. Um, 
But dicamba and other weed killers, of course, don't just target weeds, they target all plants um, and uh, mainly broadleaf plants. And so what you have is um, plants nearby in these regions uh, being very sensitive and uh, getting harmed and in some cases uh, uh, dying from exposure to non-target uh, herbicide use. Um, and then of course, let's say in California, they use a lot of a, a fumigant called 1,3-dichloropropene. This is a nematicide. So it's, uh, it's a fumigant, it's injected into the ground and then it off gases and fills all the soil pores uh, with something that kills nematodes. Um, then of course, farm workers go into those fields and start to harvest fruit um, and to manage these fields and that off gassing uh, can get breathed in. And 1,3-D is a known carcinogen. And uh, this is, can have you know, major effects on humans as well. Um, you know, a lot of these things that target plants or nematodes, which are very far removed from people, also happen to be carcinogens or neurotoxins or things that can affect our biology in ways uh, that we don't intend. So these are, you know, these sorts of examples are a dime a dozen. Uh, you see them everywhere. And uh, that just gets at the non-specific nature of a lot of pesticides. Nathan, could you talk a little bit about the example of neonicotinoid seed treatments and the risks posed to the environment through those seed coatings? Yeah, so um, seed treatments are kind of a, uh, a, whole, a whole thing. <laughs> uh, there's a lot that goes into there. So um, what happens with seed treatments is the seed is coated with uh, kind of a powder that contains pesticide. And what happens is you plant those seeds and then those pesticides sort of make it into the plant materials. And if you have insects that are biting your plant or eating off your plant, uh, they won't be able to do that because your plant has systemic insecticide flowing throughout its vascular system and those insects will die immediately. So it's a very common method to get an insecticide poison into your plant and prevent biting insects or insects that attacked plant roots uh, from harming the yield of your crop. Treated seeds are considered more or less exempted from pesticide regulation in this country um, under uh, what's called the treated, treated article exemption. So EPA um, approves the use of pesticides on um, various objects. You know, this happens like say with treated pesticide treated lumber that you use to uh, come into contact with your concrete. That's pesticide treated lumber is considered a treated article. And once that pesticide is applied to the lumber, EPA then sort of cedes authority and that lumber then becomes unregulated. It's not considered a pesticide, even though it contains one. Treated seeds are considered the same thing. So once you put your pesticide on the seed, that seed uh, can be use it uh, anywhere without very little regulation at all. Um, and this is a problem because the dust that is coated on these seeds uh, sloughs off very easily. Um, and so when you're planting these seeds, the dust gets into the air. Uh, it's obviously getting into the soil. Most of this insecticide doesn't make it into the plant material. It mostly just sort of gets washed off into the soil and eventually into nearby streams. And so, you know, EPA's position is that they sort of stop regulating once the article has been treated. 
Um, but then the whole process that happens after that, the, the environmental contamination that occurs during the planting of these treated seeds and after a large rain event that can run off, uh, that can make this pesticide run off to, to nearby waterways is extremely concerning. And this is affecting all insects. Neonicotinoids are insecticides. So they're very, very, very toxic to all invertebrates, um, terrestrial and aquatic. And um, you know this seeding of their authority to uh, some amount of oversight of these seeds is really a, a major part of the problem and, and a big reason I think neonicotinoids are having such an enormous impact on our insect populations. So Nathan, you know, pesticide drift is nothing new, but in recent years, there's been an increase in reports and observations of herbicide drift to trees and plants and um, even natural areas or conservation areas. Um, many of these areas are likely experiencing more than one exposure throughout the growing season. Um, and many of them are also getting hit year after year. Can you talk a little bit about this problem? Yeah, I think that um, pesticide drift has been around for a very, very long time, uh, as long as pesticides have been used, really. Um, and what we know is that uh, there are two very bad players, uh, Enlist Duo and Dicamba, that have sort of um, pushed this issue into the public consciousness and sort of made more people aware of just how big of an issue pesticide drift can be to surrounding ecosystems. Um, but it doesn't just end with those two pesticides. We use so many herbicides across the landscape year after year after year, and all of them are combining to uh, you know, make a problem that we don't really even know the scope to. Right now, we know there are a lot of people have reported damage from dicamba. There have been some monitoring studies by Prairie Rivers and Audubon that have been trying to systematically look at this in some way. Um, and those are giving us a good sense that uh, the problem is, is immense. You know, people can um, report incidents of harm, but if you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. So. I think now that, that this is more in the public consciousness is a very good thing and we can start to get those questions answered. Quite frankly, those questions should have been answered decades ago, um, but we don't have a systematic sort of monitoring process across the entire country, which is what we really need. Um, and not just monitoring harm to uh, agricultural crops, which is obviously the most, um, the easiest to identify because people are, are looking at those crops, but also harm to uh, native plants and areas in protected reserves. Uh, those are the plants that really provide so much respite and, and so much of an oasis in these seas, the sea of agriculture that we have in much of the Midwest. Um, and when they start getting harmed, the the ecological consequences that can come with that just start cascading on themselves. So I think that we're, we're, we're realizing that the problem is very big in scope, but we still don't know how big it is. And that's, you know, I think that's really a result of regulatory failure. Yeah. What are the rules that cover pesticides and herbicides? How are they regulated? 
Yeah, this can get quite complex. Um, but right now at the federal level, I'd say about 90% of pesticide regulation uh, is under one law called the Federal Insecticide Fungicide Rodenticide Act, which we refer to by its acronym as FIFRA. Uh, there's a little bit under the Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetics Act that govern uh, pesticide residues in food. But for the most part, there's a single law called FIFRA that governs pesticide use and approval in this country. Um, and then once a pesticide gets approved under FIFRA, then it gets kicked off to each individual state. And each individual state has their own pesticide regulatory authority. Uh, and this can range in quality from uh, very well funded and very well staffed with uh, extra scientific oversight. We see that with California, which is the most robust state pesticide regulatory system in our country. And it can range from as uh, meaningless as essentially a, an office that rubber stamps every fe federal pesticide approval. So um, each pesticide has to be approved on the federal level and by each individual state. And then states have preemptive authority such that any sub-state level, like a county or a town, cannot enact greater restrictions on pesticide use than the state will allow. Uh, they're preempted from doing so. Um, so sometimes you can have towns say that um, um, that, that they won't allow pesticide use on, on public lands by government agencies, but you can't generally ban a pesticide in a town or a county that has to be done at the state level. And states, for the most part, almost always just approve the federal label. That's the sort of status quo, that's the default. Um, and the states cannot make changes to the label, but they can, through legislative processes, ban different pesticides. We've seen that recently with uh, many states banning a pesticide called chlorpyrifos. And they can add additional restrictions uh, to that as well, as long as they're not changing the federal label per se, and they need EPA approval to do that. So states have a little bit of leeway on how they regulate pesticides, but for the most part, what the feds approve is what ends up being the default in most states. And can you explain what you mean by that when you say they can't change the federal label? What is what is that the label? Yeah, so each pesticide comes with a label that dictates the terms of its use. These can be these can range from a page long, very simple, straightforward rules on how you can use the pesticide to extremely complex, like we've seen in the case of dicamba, where you've got pages and pages and pages of rules and restrictions you have to follow. Um, so labels can range from very simple to very complex. And uh, according to federal pesticide law, you have to use the pesticide in compliance with the restrictions on its label, or else you will be using that pesticide illegally. Um, there's a you know, major issue here with how often pesticide labels are actually followed, especially given the complexity of many of them. Um, but there's very little compliance being done on whether pesticide labels are followed directly or not. And I think I 
know the answer to this, but are these rules and regulations working to protect humans, wildlife, the environment? No, they're not. Um, you know, unfortunately, our pesticide regulatory system is, in my opinion, fundamentally broken. Uh, it's uh, it, right now it exists solely for the benefit of agriculture, um, which is very frustrating to many in the public health field and environmental and, and human health advocates. Uh, you know, agriculture should certainly have their say and be able to advocate for their position. But when they're pretty much dictating uh, terms of use for most pesticides uh, and, and public health advocates aren't even getting a seat at the table, then the process is skewed and it's broken. And, you know, we see this with, you know, when EPA makes pesticide approvals or makes any pesticide action at all, they're almost always challenged by the environmental and public health communities. Uh, rarely will chemical pesticide companies or agriculture challenge EPA's decision. It doesn't happen that often. And so that's a real indication that uh, the process isn't working. You know, it, it exists to approve pesticides and make sure pesticides make it to the market instead of asking whether those should be approved or not. You know, we know this is a really complex issue and you know, we've got all of these pesticides that you mentioned being used by um, various people or industries, you know, individual landowners are using them, um, corporations, businesses are using them, as well as um, agriculture producers. And they're also being used throughout different times of the growing season. Can you talk a little bit about what is and what isn't being done to understand the ecological and human health impacts of widespread pesticide use. Um, I had imagined the measuring the impacts of such use in the real world is extremely challenging. Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I, I am very critical of EPA, but I do recognize that they have a tough, tough job. Um, and it's important to know that, you know, there are very good scientists there, um, and and the decision makers are the ones that that we've got the problem with. And so, oftentimes, the science is not analyzed in a robust manner, and that's the problem. Not a problem with the people there in the office, and it's certainly a thankless job. <laughs> it's one I certainly wouldn't want to have. So, there's a lot of good people working there, and they do have a very tough job, and that's always good to acknowledge. Um, and you know, a lot of a lot of the problems really stem from the fact that pesticides are generally considered safe unless proven otherwise. Um, it's not quite as as cut and dry that, but that's a sort of general oversimplification you can give to pesticide regulation in the U.S. And when you do that, you you know you put uh, the burden of proof on a system that is not able to provide that very often. Uh, our government agencies are very underfunded. Um, and, you know, nonprofits like yours and mine simply don't have the resources to provide the burden of proof that EPA wants to show that a pesticide is really harmful. And so the system is sort of designed to say, you need to prove it's bad 
but they don't, but that system doesn't provide the resources for anyone to possibly prove it's bad uh, unless this pesticide has been on the market for decades and academics have had some time to look into this, you know. So there, you know, there is some monitoring going on by the USGS. Uh, EPA does some, FDA does some, uh, USDA as well, but it's not near what we need to do to ensure that these products that have already been approved under the pre presumption of safety really, in fact, aren't as safe as we thought they were when they were approved. Um, and that, I think, is a, a, a big point uh, to drive home is that a lot of people will, will criticize uh, a framework that they have in Europe where they sort of assume the opposite, that something is harmful unless it can be proven otherwise. Um, but when you don't have the resources to actually look and to analyze the more than 1,000 pesticide active ingredients we have approved in this country um, and to make sure they actually can be applied safely, um, then you know the system isn't designed uh, uh, to, re to be really robust or to uh, protect people or the environment. Hey, it's Ryan again. Just wanted to interject here to thank you for listening and to remind you that you can still support more episodes and the work we do here at Prairie Rivers Network. Go to prairierivers.org to donate and become a member. Now back to the interview. I'd like to back up for a second and ask a kind of bigger picture question. You know, you said that the regulatory system around pesticides was fundamentally broken in part because it's solely for the benefit of agriculture. I think that the broader public and many decision makers in both parties in this country have a positive view of farming and farmers and agriculture at large. And, um, you know, there's a belief that ag is feeding the world. Um, you know, so what do you say to someone um, who would say, well, this is what, you know, one, do you accept that framework? But two, we need these to do that. You know, is that, is that even correct? Do we need these chemicals to grow food, to feed people? You know, it's a real good question. And it, it is important that agricultural interests are represented and they do have a place at the table. Um, and they are one interest of many in this country. Um, so it's important that everyone everyone's interests are balanced uh, in a fair manner. Um, and that's the problem, not, not that agricultural interests are, are being represented at all. And so I think that, um, you know, there, there, there is this idea that uh, US agriculture feeds the world. And we certainly have many great hardworking farmers that provide food and fiber for this country as well as abroad. Um, but, you know, when we talk about farming in this country, it's it's almost all commodity crops. Uh, some of these go to feed humans directly, but many, uh, particularly corn and soy, are um, you know used uh, pretty much solely to feed animals and to produce uh, ethanol for use in uh, as a gasoline additive. So you know there's a lot of a lot of things that farming does that that aren't isn't feeding the world <laughs> um and you know 
the idea that, that we need pesticides uh, to be able to farm is right now, you know, it's one that I, you know, I'm not in favor of banning all pesticides. Um, I don't think that, that all pesticides should be banned. Um, but the way that we use pesticides right now is unsustainable. And a lot of it is unnecessary. It's treating seeds prophylactically before there's even a pest identified. A pesticide is used as sort of an insurance policy. And so we can easily get rid of those uh, uses. Um, and then again, we've got every, every time uh, there's been a, a pesticide ban in the past, this happened with DDT, it happened with carbofuran, um, the agricultural community has, has sort of been up in arms and said, if you get rid of this pesticide, our industry is going to fail. Um, and a lot of this is being drummed up by the chemical industries. And then we've seen time and again that that doesn't happen. Um, and, it, you know, banning the single pesticide is, is never going to cause an entire industry to fail. So pesticides are one way to get rid of pests. Uh, but right now they're being used as often the only way to get rid of pests. And that's really the fundamental problem. Yeah, we really need to take a different approach to this issue. And we need to focus on diversifying our food and farming systems in a way that makes them more resilient and less reliant on the synthetic inputs and pesticides. And we need investments to help make this happen and technical support on the ground to help the growers make these changes. Yeah, I think that's a great point because, you know, we use pesticides to target pests and pests thrive when they have a single species of plant with very little genetic diversity being grown over hundreds of thousands, millions of acres. So we're farming in a way that is making it necessary to use pesticides because that's the only way it can be profitable. Whereas if you intercrop, if you um, uh, plant different crops in the same area, you have some genetic diversity there. You don't have a single crop. And a lot of these pest problems either get uh, lessened quite, quite a bit or go away altogether. There's quite a bit of evidence out there that's, that is showing what you just said, that you know diversity helps and that complexity helps. And um, there's such a thing as positive competition. I'd like to go back to um, different types of pesticide pollution and, and sort of back to the, the discussion of herbicide drift and herbicide movement. When you have a herbicide that is highly volatile, and you really can't control it after it has been applied. Um, where are we failing in that in terms of regulation and enforcement and environmental protection? I mean, how can we safely and honestly say that, you know, this pesticide is not causing unreasonable harm to the environment or to our communities? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, when we talk about pesticide drift, there's there's a lot of ways that can happen. One is, uh, you know, the liquid droplets that are sprayed can get spread by wind. Uh, you can also have many pesticides are applied to fields and end up uh, adhering to soil particles. And then if you've got a dry few days and a strong wind, those soil particles can get uh, lifted up into the air. Um, and then you've got sort of pesticide drift on, on solid soil particles. 
And then what you're talking about is volatility where the pesticide is actually sprayed and then essentially uh, evaporates as a gas and then can move in the gaseous phase throughout the atmosphere. And that gets really, really worrisome because it's hard and in some cases impossible to stop volatilization. Um, uh, particle drift uh, and liquid droplet drift are something you can generally uh, sort of mitigate through different use practices, but volatilization really can't. There's some things you can do with the chemistry of the product to reduce that. Um, there's some restrictions you can place, but at some point you're placing so many restrictions that you can't really use the product anymore. So there's no point to the approval in the first place. So I think the, the main problem is, is that a lot of the pesticides have been overused for so long and used um, irresponsibly for so long that they're no longer effective. We see this with glyphosate um, where it was a relatively, you know, more or less benign herbicide that had very few issues with it, but it was just overused for so long that now we're sort of dipping our hands back into the basket for these really, really troublesome herbicides to kill the weeds that glyphosate doesn't kill anymore. And when you start you know, digging back into things that have been approved since the 50s or 60s, you're getting into things that you know, really should be considered obsolete. Um, and that's the case of dicamba where it's just, as a chemical, it's just an awful pesticide because it doesn't stay put. And, you know, I think the problem is, is we're sort of doubling down on this system instead of saying, wow, glyphosate kind of was a colossal failure after these decades of using it incorrectly. And our regulators are saying, well, let's double down on that strategy and use the say, you know, use worse herbicides in conjunction with it instead of saying, you know what, maybe we're on the wrong path here. Maybe we need to be looking at different ways of dealing with glyphosate resistant weeds or other herbicide resistant weeds, instead of just piling on four or five different herbicides into your tank. Nathan, you mentioned earlier that we just don't know what's happening to, you know, like that there's not enough resources being devoted to understanding how widespread the problem is insofar as pesticide misuse is regulated, um, you know, misuse according to the label guidelines, that, that, that's a way that pesticides are regulated, but many states have a reporting process, rely on a reporting process where landowners that receive drift file the misuse comp complaint. Um, so, you know, could you describe a little bit the flaws in an enforcement system that relies on neighbors reporting neighbors for misuse? Yeah, you know, uh, obviously misuse incidents can be a good line of evidence to show that a pesticide is dangerous and it needs to be incorporated into a robust risk assessment and to make sure that something that was once thought um, safe uh, is still safe. Um, and when you have a lot of incidents reported after a product is approved, that is an indication that it may not be as safe as you once thought it was. Um, you know, there's a big issue with 
relying on reported incidents to assure yourself or a regulatory agency that a product is safe because we know, and EPA acknowledges as much, that reported incidents are just a small fraction of the total harm that is out there. So we know the number of reported incidents is always an underestimate of the true harm. So you're relying on something that is acknowledged to be an underestimate is troubling in and of itself. And then again, you're, you know, you're relying on people to report, uh, you know, misuse from their friends, their neighbors. Uh, this puts people in a very tight situation and many don't follow up on it um, and just say, you know, well, try and try and deal with this myself or I'll just ignore it and, and hope that it doesn't happen again. Um, and no one should be put in that situation. Um, and, uh, you know, another thing that really frustrates me about the pesticide label process is it takes liability away from the chemical companies that are profiting from and distributing this poison. And it puts those liabilities on the user, on the farmer. And so, you know, if you've got a 13 page label that gives you 60 different things you have to comply with in order to use that product, quote unquote, legally, uh, you're setting that farmer up to fail because to make sure that you're applying it legally is incredibly tough. And so a farmer is taking on a lot of liability if they wanna use this product. Whereas the company that is making money off it, that in many cases, uh, I think we've shown this with Dicamba, has known this is a very troublesome issue, uh, is laughing all the way to the bank. And you know they can be held to some liability through tort claims and stuff like that. But for the most part, the people who are going to get hit are the farmers. And I think that system really is, uh, you know, it's anti-agriculture in my mind. Uh, and it's, it's something that needs to be grappled with. So the Illinois Pesticide Act is written with the assumption that it's impossible to stop all drift. You talked about how difficult that is earlier. Um, so the assumption there is that there are reasonable levels of adverse impacts and contamination with these herbicides like dicamba and 2,4-D volatilizing and getting into the atmosphere and going who knows where, how can we assess what is an acceptable level of harm to the public or environment? How does that have any meaning? Yeah, this is sort of also wrapped into the federal pesticide approval process. Uh, FIFRA, the major law that governs pesticide use, says that EPA has to make sure that no unreasonable adverse effects occur from use of the pesticide. And they define unreasonable adverse effects as uh, the effects uh, taking into account the costs and benefits of the pesticide. So pesticide approval is always a cost benefit exercise. There are you know, some purported benefits of pesticide use uh, by the agricultural community and by the pesticide company. And those have to be adequately balanced with the costs. And right now, like I mentioned before, the federal approval is really tilted towards the agricultural sector, the chemical company sector. And that sort of makes them lean more heavily on the purported benefits of pesticide use. And so when you don't have an adequately balanced costs and benefit assessment, 
then you're going to be approving pesticides that many people think uh, comes at too great of a cost to society. Um, and you see this again with dicamba is that, uh, you know, our federal regulators and the state regulators acknowledge that harm is occurring. I mean, no one's denying that, but they say the benefits outweigh the harm. And, you know, some people think that and others don't. And so it's, it's just, it's just really important to have all viewpoints accounted for uh, accurately in the pesticide approval process. And that doesn't happen all that often, unfortunately. And it, we get into these things of like, you know, the vagueness in the, the laws of like, what is reasonable and what's not. Um, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> people get extremely frustrated about it and it's understandable. And so I think our regulators can do a lot better to make sure that uh, people who think the harms are too high, that their concerns are adequately addressed. So who is defining what is reasonable in this scenario? Is it industry? <laughs> you found the black box. <laughs> uh, it's literally a black box. What EPA, the decision makers, they're called uh, risk managers, uh, basically look at documentation of the ecological and the human health harms. Then they look at documentation provided to them by the chemical company and by uh, agricultural groups that uh, talk about the purported benefits of pesticide use, and they make a decision. It's a qualitative decision. It's, uh, you know, we, there's no guidance that I've ever seen on how this decision is made. Uh, it's more or less a political decision. And that, again, is, is sort of at the heart of why it's so bad that uh, agriculture and chemical companies uh, have these closed door meetings with EPA every week. And, you know, we can't even get a seat at the table um, anytime, you know, we, we want to talk with them. So it's, uh, again, the, the, the cost benefit analysis is just a qualitative, you know, well, let's put these restrictions in place. You know, we'll, we'll basically put as many restrictions in place as the chemical companies will allow us and then say that that is an adequate balancing. That's generally what happens. And can we have faith in the research that's been done to that underlies the cost or the benefit? You know, there was just a story this last week where EPA emails were uncovered that there was a political push to influence the science that EPA was doing, analyzing the cost of dicamba. Um, so that's just one of many stories we've heard about politics influencing the approval of, of a pesticide, um, specifically thwarting agencies from actually doing the science to look into these things. How pervasive of a problem is that in your opinion? Yeah, it's really pervasive. Um, I think a lot of a lot of people sort of just assume that um, the studies done uh, looking at toxicity to animals and people are done by either the government or by academics and professors in universities. Uh, but that's not how it's done. The chemical companies 
who ask EPA to approve their products are on the hook for providing the toxicity studies that EPA uses to analyze the costs, the toxicity to uh, ecological resources and animals and plants and humans. Um, so a new pesticide that's approved will only have a handful of studies done by the pesticide industry or a lab that they have consulted with. And that's the picture they get. Uh, and we know from the literature time and again, uh, when companies do studies on their own products, they generally find they are much safer than when an independent researcher does those same studies. So they're getting initially a biased look at the toxicities of these studies, or sorry, the toxicity of these pesticides. Um, and then, you know, with older pesticides, sometimes they'll have other research done by independent researchers to look at as well. But what we, what generally happens is EPA discounts studies in the peer reviewed literature. Uh, they find faults with those studies uh, and they pretty much explain those away to the point where they are still just relying on the industry studies that they require to be submitted when the, when the pesticide is approved in the first place. So, you know, it's a big, big problem, but it's one that doesn't necessarily have an easy solution because the government doesn't have the money to fund these studies. Um, universities certainly don't, uh, nonprofits certainly don't. The only entity that has the money to fund this type of experimentation is the pesticide companies. So, you know, that's sort of led us to sort of advocate for a system by which the pesticide companies are on the hook for funding these studies, but the studies themselves need to be conducted by a government agency, by a third party. Uh, this could be the EPA, this could be the National Institutes of Health, uh, the Center for Disease Control, any government agency that can provide some level of detachment between the pesticide companies and these studies, because that absolutely needs to happen. And the only way these studies can be funded is through the money the pesticide companies provide. So I don't, I don't see that going anywhere anytime soon, unfortunately. But um, yeah, it's, it's a big problem because these studies are just biased from the outset and we get an underestimate of the true harms that we see. And I also think adding to that, you know, we really need to have a robust ecological monitoring program that, you know, looks at, um, you know, levels of pesticides in the water and the air, um, symptoms and, and plant communities. And we need to be able to document and, you know, record where symptoms are showing, when they're showing, what the severity of those symptoms are. And right now, we don't have that. Um, we certainly don't have that in Illinois. I mean, there's bits and pieces of comprehensive monitoring programs that are in place, but we don't really have a comprehensive program in place that is looking at you know, the ecological impacts in real time. You're right, we don't. Uh, it's again, you know, the only entity that can fund this type of thing is either a well-funded government or state government or a pesticide company. And we don't have a well-funded state or federal government. So, you know, one thing would be is to, to ensure that pesticide companies put money into a pot when they, you know, get approval for their products and that money can go towards 
those things, like you mentioned, monitoring, systematic uh, oversight, which are really expensive and time consuming. Um, and they need a lot of resources in order to be robust. Um, so it's, yeah, I think we can easily do that and make the pesticide companies on the hook for that money. But, you know, this would take an act of legislation, unfortunately, and, and we don't have much hope of that anymore these days. So how do we create change? What can groups like ours do? What can the average citizen do um, to improve this situation? Yeah, you know, I think there's there's two prongs here that need to be fixed. Um, and fixing one will get us a long way to fixing the other. One is legislative changes. We need stronger laws. That is, of course, a very big uphill push right now and one I don't have a lot of faith in. Uh, at least at this point, hopefully that might change in the future. But um, the other one is there is a culture at the EPA pesticide office that has to be changed. Uh, they function like they are part of USDA, uh, not like they are part of EPA. Um, and uh, comparing the pesticide office to other offices within the EPA, the clean air office, the water office, it's just a bad player all around. And, um, you know, I, I'm hoping there will be some turnover in that office in the higher up positions because we need new blood in there. We need people who aren't tainted from, you know, this over lobbying that the agrochemical sector has had on this agency for the last three or four decades. Um, and we need uh, uh, policies and guidance which can be done without legislative changes. Uh, that really force the EPA to uh, do a robust analysis and do robust follow-up on approvals. If I could ask you to look into the crystal ball for a second and, and project out, what do, what do our landscapes look like if we do not take those kinds of actions and we continue to allow widespread application of all of these poisons. What, what do you see? Uh, well, I see uh, a very boring landscape, uh, one without flowers, one without, you know, uh, healthy trees. Uh, I mean, right now it's estimated that 40% of the world's insects are on track for extinction in the next few decades. Uh, that's real, that's tangible. Um, you know, obviously they face many threats. It's not just pesticides, but pesticides is a big one. And when we lose our diverse insect species, when we lose diversity of plant species, um, we lose so much about what makes our landscape beautiful. Uh, we lose all the ecosystem services they provide. We lose the base of the food chain, which affects everything on up from birds to mammals to us. You know, we lose specialty crops, specialty crops, most of which need insect pollination. Um, so we're just looking at a diet consisting of commodity crops, wheat, corn, soy. These are just empty calories. They don't provide us the nutrition we need to, you know, function. Uh, to, to be healthy uh, in our species. And so we lose so much that is enjoyable uh, in our world. And um, unfortunately, you know, 
in this scenario, all I see are just seas of corn and soy. Uh, and that's, that's really boring. And there's nothing really to look forward to in that world. Okay, so flip that around. If we take action, if we take bold, decisive action and, and do what is necessary, describe the positives that come out of that scenario. The positives are uh, our landscapes, our ecosystems are resilient and pesticides, uh, at least not ones that are currently in use, uh, pesticides don't stick around forever. Uh, they will break down, they will be gone uh, in our lifetime. And so if we take action now and we save these ecosystems, the year after year after year onslaught that they're getting, they'll rebound. Uh, this is, uh, we're not at a place of, of no return. We're not there yet. And so, you know, this is what I view as extremely positive in that we know we can make an effect right now. Um, obviously it's, you know, it's an uphill battle to get action these days, which is, it can be frustrating, but it's doable. And I think that, um, uh, you know, if we can take meaningful action now, um, we will save those beautiful places that we all cherish so much. Nathan, I want to thank you for your time talking with us today uh, and sharing your expertise. Is there anywhere you would like to direct listeners? Oh, um, that's a good question. Um, you can always go to our website at biologicaldiversity.com and um, uh, look on there at different actions you can take uh, to protect our natural world. Um, and uh, get out and do a hike. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you again. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks, Robert. Okay. Thanks. As I said earlier, the issue is complex, widespread, something that won't be fixed overnight. The costs are significant, and we risk environmental and personal health if we stay the course. But if we change the fundamental way we interact with the landscape, and move away from the widespread use of dangerous pesticides, things will get better. As Nathan said, we're not at the point of no return yet. Thank you to Nathan Donnelly for his expertise and for taking the time to share it with us. And thank you for listening. See you next time.